Good afternoon. It is 4.30, and you're listening to KDNK. It's time for Valley Voices. I'm your host, Amy Haddon Marsh, and I have a very, very special guest with me today, Mr. Aaron Taylor, director of the Way of Compassion Foundation. Welcome, Aaron. So lovely to be here, Amy. Thanks for having me in. And get a little closer to that mic. I, I will. There we go. Perfect. Well, you know, we've got some excitement happening um, this weekend, and it's already coming up. I mean, it's the fourth annual Compassion Film Fest. Fourth. You are correct. Tell us about it. You were there for some of the early ones, I remember, and it was, uh, the the thought was, I wonder what it would be like, like Mountain Fair is when, you know, it's 45 years in or 50 years in to think about it. And, you know, the first couple of years, we were fortunate enough to have an in-person festival here in Carbondale at the mm-hmm. Third Street Center. And now we're flexing with the times uh, and have transitioned to doing an online festival, which most film festivals are doing these days. So, really? so it's totally online. Ours is totally online this wow. year. We made a, a switch about a month ago yeah. uh, after seeing the trend that was happening. We felt it more uh, responsible to host our event online this year um, as we saw things were changing. So this will be our second year doing it all online, which makes it actually accessible to more people. That's which is true. Yeah, they can be in Kenya and and participate. Absolutely. Or Tibet and participate. The worldwide connection. That's true. So um, how does that work, though, online? I mean, you have your, this year you've got some interesting workshops scheduled. You have a couple of uh, yoga teachers, and you have um, a woman who is doing some kind of a workshop on neuroplasticity. Yeah, she she is. She has a institute called the Neuroplastic Functional Training Institute, I believe, and her workshops entitled uh, "Perfecting Love by Removing Fear." And so she um, actually, we're very fortunate this year to have a number of our presentations being done by uh, documentary subjects, main main document documentary subjects of films that are in the festival. So our trend is that we're we're less uh, an overarching festival, which was our first year idea, was that the the film festival was a sub-portion of right. a festival. Mm-hmm. Now we're actually recognizing that uh, the film festival is the centerpiece. And so from that way, we're, we're actually having this fortune of people in the films joining us for workshops and, and forming around them. So is Lauren... What is her name? I'm sorry. Lauren Maloney Gepfert. Is she in a movie? She is. She's the main documentary subject of the film Healing Rebel. And uh, she's worked with many locals here in our valley and in Carbondale, um, really healing them through, uh, many of them have had physical injuries, spinal cord injuries. And she works with this functional training that she presents them, kind of a positive reinforcement, talking yourself through this process of healing in a very positive way, um, breaking down barriers that medical diagnoses give people, and actually opening it up for the healing power of the mind and the heart. And she actually has individuals walking again that, you know, medical science said, well, you'll probably never walk again. 
Right, and that's testament to neuroplasticity, which R- is the ability of the brain to expand and adjust. And some scientists, based on the little bit that I've read about it, believe that neuroplasticity stops at age 25. And, um, you know, what what it seems that she's doing is proving that wrong. Yeah, there's, of course, we keep expanding out above our uh, own knowing. And what's being found now is that, you know, the brain never stops forming and changing. And so it gives us, actually, it breaks that barrier and that glass ceiling where, you know, we think we are who we are. But is that actually true? You know, we can train our minds to be um, different. And it's neuroplasticity is, is uh, uh, showing that, you know, an example of that. Neuroplasticity. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting term. Plasticity, neuroplasticity. That should be a really interesting workshop. It's going to be dynamic. She's so is she going to train kind. people how to do it, or what, she, what do you think will be involved in that workshop? She's actually going to leave people with a toolkit, so to engage in this practice of, um, you know, so she works with these individuals who have physical disabilities and, and works on their physical movement and breaking those barriers. But here she's gone more um, universal, we could say, um, to helping us perfect love and by, you know, breaking down those barriers. And, and what she's, she's showing is that the fear is what prevents it. So how do we break the, you know, our habit of fear into then moving into a, a loving state? So she's, she's going to leave individuals with a toolkit. Wow. So that's, so the changes that she's working on are actual, are manifested physically what I'm hearing. She, as I understand it, which I'm very much not an expert, but she <clears throat> she uses the voice as kind of positive affirmations mm-hmm. uh, that you speak vocally to yourself. And um, for the physical disability, she'll have people uh, actually watch, you know, like runners and watch them. Oh. And then they usually practice in a really low gravity environment uh-huh. doing these movements and positive affirmations and oh, neat. and sure. setting their sights on a goal that's bigger than what they thought they could achieve, mm-hmm. right? And through those systems, they actually gain their movement back. And in this way, we can do the same for mental states as well. And through all of that, the fear is pretty much erased because people are actually seeing, especially the, the people who are disabled and they're you know learning to walk or run again or use the part of their body that doctors told them they would never use again, that the fact that that's actually, uh, they're actually succeeding at that is, you know, sort of erasing, blasting through the fear, it sounds like. I'm just guessing. Yeah, I would be guessing too at this point, but what I have recognized and and has been illustrated is that when love is, you know, present in my own heart and mind, fear isn't. Mm -hmm. So it's like a light switch. When When it's there, then the darkness isn't. Uh, it can switch rapidly, of course, but the more that we cultivate that love, then the fear becomes less able to exist because it's being outshined by something we're cultivating. You know, something comes to mind that really has nothing to do with the film fest. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Even though the film fest is great and we'll get back to that. But in this, in these times, in these times, when, you know, the IPCC report just came out this week talking about how climate change is worsening and um, there's COVID, um, 
do you find how how does that challenge this idea of love replacing fear I I hope that makes sense because I you know it's pretty scary this week I've been pretty pretty frightened with Mm -hmm. all of this all of this news and feeling pretty powerless and how how does your practice of replacing fear with love how is that challenged in these times well i think the important part since it's kind of directed at me personally um the important part for me is to recognize that fear doesn't serve me you know it in its moments it doesn't actually serve me uh if i have a life-threatening situation then yes it can be very useful and there's reasons for that but but many of these things that I become fearful of in the day are not life-threatening at that moment. And what fear does is it makes me rise up ready to fight or flee. And in that case, maybe neither of those is actually a useful response to something that needs a much more wise, discerning, um, helpful response. And so to come from a place of, let's say, love or compassion, I can respond actually in a better way. To those things. I can make better decisions be- because I'm not under the influence of that fear, which, again, there's usefulness to it, but for most of what I experience, there isn't. All right. And coming from a relaxed body also helps you, I would imagine, helps one um, engage in a more loving, compassionate response. Does that make sense? Relaxation is really yeah. key to having. Um, a basis from which to move. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think that's, you know, a practice that we can all do in our own lives is to practice relaxation, which is a foundation for, for better, healthier actions in our own life too. If we're not as stressed, we're going to be more available for people and for our communities. So it's difficult to do, but important in these times. Yeah. I want to get back to, um, thank you for um, indulging me in that a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to get back to the film fest. It just looks really kind of edgy this year a little bit. It, it, uh, um, talk about some of, talk about the, uh, main, the feature films. I've seen one of them, Garunanak, 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 yep. About the founder of Sikhism. Mm-hmm. And that's a delightful film so necessary what they're doing in this country and then there's um another one called the shepherdess of the glaciers and then another one called the least we can do both of which are really heavy award winners yeah so guru nanak is uh, a wonderful film for um in our sense of compassion is how do we open up to different communities and people who are not like us and so this is an opportunity to actually learn and to experience what it what it is and from the Sikh tradition, uh, their focus on service, their focus on caring for others, um, who Guru Nanak was and how he came to form this tradition that's become very widespread. And so for for us in the Compassion Film Festival, it offers an opportunity of connection to uh, maybe those we don't know much about and come to understand and respect um, where they're coming from because there's a lot of uh, misinformation going around about um, how somebody looks and what that means and or you know what their label is and what that means. And so this is a beautiful example of highlighting that tradition. Shepherdess of the Glaciers is just a beautiful film about uh, 
an individual who is completely committed to her flock of goats. And she spends about five months high in the Himalaya with them and uh, on her own. So she has no one else coming there, maybe just for short visits only. And it's about her relationship with protecting this flock and treating them as her own and her kind of more broad spiritual journey within this way of life. You know, she's she doesn't know how to read or write. She lives very differently than many people, but provides such an incredible service to her community and to these animals. So, And the cinematography and sound on this one is really beautiful. So uh, it's a treat for the eyes and ears. And the least we can do is a story about Yazidi women who've been essentially traumatized. And uh, the Canadian... Yazidi women. Yazidi women, yeah. Where do they live? This is beyond my understanding. I haven't seen this film. So. Iraq, yeah. it looks like. So okay. these are traumatized women that... Um, are uh, invited into the Canadian provinces uh, by the government to have um, opportunity for healing. And so I think what's come up in my own perspective recently is this idea of trauma-informed societies and trauma-informed care and trauma-informed education that, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, behaviors that people have can be traced back to trauma and how we grew up and what happened to us. And so therefore, uh, this is an opportunity to get some more insight onto, you know, these, these trauma type of situations, how we can become informed, and then also what governments are doing in particular and attempting to do to heal. Uh, so I think it's a window into a much bigger uh, discussion that needs to happen and is happening. There was also a great film called Wisdom of Trauma, which is not in our festival but has brought a great light to trauma, what it, what types of individuals and their behaviors and what, how it stems back to trauma very clearly. And it could be intergenerational trauma or individual trauma. And so I think it brings a big window to something that's being explored very widely now, which is helpful for us all to know is that, you know, that person over there who acted in a particular way that might seem like they were mean or not respectful instead of saying, you know, that they're responsible for that, well, actually what happened to them to cause those conditions for them to act in that way? So it gives us a window. Right. I think a lot of people and cultures and communities have been uh, exploring intergenerational trauma and uh, um, familiar trauma, trauma from the family. Mm -hmm. And intergenerational, when I say that, uh, more as a culture than just a family, but um, both are being explored. And uh, a lot of work is being done on, on several levels, spiritual, the psychic level, um, psychological level, uh, to resolve that, to recognize that a lot of behaviors um, are passed down, not just you know things like alcoholism or drug use, um, but uh, wife beating or battering, um, and just uh, different kinds of emotional responses can be passed down. It's unbelievable through generations, you know. And then trauma, you know, uh, passed down um, through cultural generations. Native Americans talk a lot about the trauma of, you know, the, the Indian Wars. Mm -hmm. And then there's also, in the European tradition, uh, and women have this generational trauma of the witch burnings mm -hmm. and the wise women burnings that happened in the 
uh, 14th through the 16th centuries. And that's amazing how without even knowing, even if you don't know that that stuff happened, there's still you still can be uh, responding out of trauma that has been passed down. And that's, to me, that's, it's almost unfathomable, but I understand it. Yeah, and there's, you know, even if <clears throat> one doesn't, uh, recognize like at a cellular level how that might happen, which I don't have any understanding of really. Um, but we can see how actions transmit from one generation to another. And so that's a clear way. Um, I think the the recognition is that a lot of people probably don't even recognize they're traumatized in some way. And, exactly. so, and so they may, they may not, they, you know, people don't want to act out and in poor ways, you know, they do because they get gripped by their emotions and then they're unable to make a healthy decision. It's not like they woke up that day and said, I'm going to really screw it up today. (laughs) (laughs) I know I've done, I've done plenty of screwing up. So, and I don't wake up with that idea. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to really screw up, you know, the day or my life with this action. It's, we get gripped and and by fear or anger or whatever it is. And then we're unable to make a healthy choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not to be passive about the healing that can happen in the the focus of working on ourselves there's there's plenty of that to be done but there's people many of them probably don't know they're traumatized right, exactly and that's why i think this you know educating people is really important i love that idea of um this film on the on the yazidi um yazidi genocide mm-hmm. Tell us about the shorts. These are the feature films we just talked about, mm-hmm. three of them. Tell us about the shorts and also how you decided on these films this year. Yeah, that's a great question. The shorts, um, there's 17 of them, so unable to really speak on all of those. But the um, a couple of the films that will be highlighted in workshops, one of them is Awesome in Action, which is a, a film about our friend Nick Russo's who is going to be doing a war- a workshop called Anyone Can Be a Hero. He has been in a wheelchair, you know, his whole life, and he has cerebral palsy, but talk about somebody who has fortitude and an incredible support structure and also a great loving heart and willingness to uh, do presentations and create a whole business and He's uh, a write hero. books. <laughs> he is a hero, yeah. And it's a it's a humorous movie. It's one that's uplifting, and it shows that people with really difficult circumstances, uh, in fact, have the capacity to flourish. And so that's a beautiful story. Again, I mentioned Healing Rebel. Lauren will be doing that workshop on um, the love and fear. And, you know, there's a number of other films. One of them comes to mind about... Um, uh, a story of a woman whose child took their own life and she blogged for the first thousand days after uh, his passing. And um, it, what, what it was for me was this recognition of how important life is and how important it is to care for others. And also the film gives us tools and resources to be open and available for people who are having suicidal ideation and things like that to not alienate those people, to be available and in a healthy way, in an open way. Um, so we're getting tools from these these movies as well, which I think is really helpful. Uh, so those, you know, and there's, so there's 17 films and they range from about um, one minute uh, to 40. And so there are three screenings of short films and 
there are the three feature-length films, and then there's going to be seven workshops um, that are all available. So that's the kind of the lineup. Uh, the live streaming workshops will happen um, throughout the first five days or four days. It goes until Tuesday the 17th. All the live streams will happen if you want to attend live to ask questions, to do those sorts of things. There is a schedule. Other than that, they get recorded, uploaded, and then you can watch them until the end of the festival, which ends on the 22nd. So last year, we only had three days of an online festival, and every, and most of the comments that we got in feedback was, we need it to be longer <laughs> because That's we can't fabulous. watch all the films. Yeah. So we made it longer. So it's nine days this time where Great. people can watch. So, okay. yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, what about the people who don't have access to internet? Right. Then what happens? So this is a challenge. You know, it's the digital divide, they call it. So there are people who cannot view. And... Uh, for those individuals, um, you know, there's any sort of options for friends and family, like you might be able to go to somewhere with a good internet connection. Um, but it is a challenge. And so nothing's perfect. Uh, we are not able to really share the films more widely because of a agreement with all the filmmakers. So we, we agree to show them in a particular way. Um, so yes, you've just pointed out a challenge in here. And so it's not a challenge. And and for it being a challenge for a film festival, we can see how it's actually a, a vast, big challenge for the broad scope of the world, the way that where technology comes into play. So, yeah, it's a challenge. How did you guys determine, we just have a few minutes left. I, just, I need, sometimes I need an hour. For sure. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Um, we have about four minutes left. Mm-hmm. And um, the the theme of the festival this year is healing together and you mentioned that you know a lot of the films offer tools Mm -hmm. uh and i know barb chambliss who's a a local mediator is going to be talking Mm -hmm. about that and that's all about healing um Mm -hmm. and but what made you decide on that theme and the films that you're showing this year how did you go about doing that our um our kind of process is to um we we originally came together to highlight compassion in the world and to do so through a film festival and for multiple purposes one of them is that people are ingesting and you know exposing themselves to media all the time so how can we put in healthy content it's just like eating you know if you're going to eat something is it going to be healthy or junk food same for our minds so we want to put out healthy content that can be nourishing uh then also the whole industry of filmmaking has a certain lens as well uh, is you know what are the popular films and what shows up in theaters is not necessarily that healthy content suicide squad so let's let's offer a bit of a leverage point to encourage the film industry to actually engage in these um these filmmaking procedures to um, create more content so that we're starting to to function that And then other than that, our focus is really to offer our attendees a healthy, nourishing, and inspiring weekend that reconnects them to the humanity that's all around, that's not being highlighted in the media, that is the truth of everyday life, and is one that is being highlighted in beautiful ways by these filmmakers. I like that truth of everyday life. All right, we're down to the wire here. How can people find tickets Tickets and passes are available at CompassionFest.world. CompassionFest.world. 
world. They're on sale all throughout the festival, but okay. best to pick them up right away so you can watch throughout the mm-hmm. dates of the festival, mm-hmm. which are August 13 through 22. So that's tomorrow. What's happening tomorrow? So all of the films get unlocked tomorrow, oh. and you can go and watch them at your own pace. Oh. And our first live stream events on Saturday morning. Okay. And that's on the website. There will be there's a schedule okay. there. And if you sign up you also get an email eventually of the schedule of events for the live streams. Okay. Because I was looking at the website and I was a little confused. I thought, well, there's a schedule, but what about the films? And then it dawned on me, this is online. You can watch it anytime you want. Exactly. Yeah. Aaron Taylor, on a scale from zero to ten, zero being not at all, <laughs> ten being off the charts. How excited are you about this? <laughs> I am an eight. <laughs> an eight? What's it going to take for you to be a 10? The attendees are going to be a 10. I'm an eight because there's a lot more that needs to be done. And uh-huh. so this is where you know I, I need to continue to focus and to bring things together. So for me, though I'm practicing as best as possible, I still get overwhelmed at times. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. well, so I, I still have a bit that. of that, but... Uh, I'm I'm excited, mm-hmm. beyond excited about what's going to happen uh, in this next nine days. And for me, the excitement only wanes because I know what's left to be done. Yes. Well, Aaron Taylor, director of the Way of Compassion Foundation, thank you very much for joining me again on uh, Valley Voices. Everybody, you can go to compassionfest.world. You got it. Get your tickets. The films are unlocked tomorrow. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thank you. Here's a program from our archives. We're listening to a time-lapse recording of the sounds generated by a meteor as it entered the Earth's atmosphere. Meteors usually burn up or explode as they near our planet. But what happens when one of them crash lands on Earth? I'm Jim Metzner, and this is the pulse of the planet. Douglas Revelle is a scientist with Los Alamos National Laboratory who's been studying meteorite impacts. If they impact the Earth, they can create a tremendous crater, like in the case of Meteor Crater in Arizona. And if they hit the ocean, where the ocean is reasonably shallow, they can create tidal waves or tsunamis. So there's a tremendous range of possibilities for extraterrestrial materials that can produce a tremendous amount of effects that we can observe on the ground. Dr. Ravel tells us that meteorite impacts don't always produce disastrous effects. Sometimes they don't even leave a crater. There seem to be another phenomena besides craters. For example, the June 30th, 1908 fall over Siberia. The real puzzle with that event is that there is no crater on the ground. We know there was an object, it was well observed, and some 5 to 10 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, the uh, meteorite apparently broke into billions of pieces because nothing was ever found on the ground. Back in the 1930s, there appears to have been a similar event over Brazil, where a large forest was knocked down and a tremendous amount of lights and sounds were seen and observed by people on the ground. There's an interesting one called the West Hoba meteorite. All the indications are that it was tremendously slowed down by the atmosphere. And when it hit the ground, it didn't produce a crater. It bounced, and then it rolled about a quarter of a mile and stopped. In future programs, we'll hear about the odds of a more cataclysmic meteorite impact. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is the Pulse of the Planet.
Good afternoon. It's just about 4.59, and you're listening to KDNK, Carbondale Community Access Radio, Glenwood Springs, Carbondale, the Roaring Fork Valley, and beyond. Valley View invites the community to a virtual town hall Wednesday, August 18th at noon. Registration is at vvh.org. Stay tuned for NPR's All Things Considered, KDNK local and regional news coming up at 534, and we'll have a little bit on the weather, so stay tuned. there. 